You're listening to Popaganda, the Feminism and Pop Culture podcast. Today on the show, we're talking about designing for democracy. We're looking at barriers that are designed into our democracy that either make it harder to vote or easier to vote or affect who actually participates. Our next segment is about voting for people with disabilities, and it comes to us from independent radio producer Alan Montecilio. Hi, Alan. Hi there. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks for putting together this segment for our show. Yeah, it's great. I had a lot of, I learned a lot uh, working on it. I first met you because you're a producer for another awesome podcast, uh, which everyone should listen to, called Racist Sandwich. That's about race, class, food, and gender. Um, and we started talking about something you could put together for this episode about democracy. And you suggested looking into sort of barriers to voting for people with disabilities. Why was that a story you wanted to take on? Well, one of the things that always comes up whenever there's a presidential election are how, I guess, politicians and strategists can court lucrative voting blocks, right? So they, there's always, you know, how do black people vote? How do Latino people vote? How do Asian people vote? Never mind the fact that there's huge diversities within those voting blocks. Um, but there, you know, there are nearly 50 million Americans with disabilities, and they're really not talked about, either in terms of political strategy, or in terms of what their issues are, or in terms of designing systems that can make it easier for people with disabilities to vote. And, you know, if we're talking about designing systems for the public, uh, if your view of the public is really incomplete and is leaving out a lot of people, you're not going to design systems that actually work for everybody. And what happens, I think one of the things that's stood out to me is that if systems don't work for you, you just don't show up and vote. So a lot of these issues um, around voting for people with disabilities, first of all, aren't on politicians' radars, even though it's a huge, potentially a huge group of people that could be voting in these elections that are excluded so you're just getting your start in radio, but does this story remind you of something you've reported before, or how does this tie into the other work you've done? So I worked in the story on healthcare for Pacific Islanders who are actually excluded from Medicaid coverage because of uh, part of welfare reform in the mid-1990s. And it seems kind of obscure, and hey, if it doesn't affect you, maybe it is obscure, but if it affects you, then it's definitely not. It's not an issue on the periphery, it's actually front and center. And I think what links those two stories is that Again, as I was saying earlier, they both stem from a really incomplete view of who actually makes up the public. So how does a story about health care for Pacific Islanders tie into issues around voting for people with disabilities? What's the connection there? What both of those things have in common is that now it's up to individual states and individual counties to figure it out. You know, for in the case of Pacific Islanders, since they're ineligible for Medicaid, different states have supplied health care. Some haven't. In the case of voting with disabilities... Uh, some states have different, you know, different states have different voting systems. You have vote by mail, you have curbside voting. Some places are accessible, some aren't. And so it's really kind of scattered all over the place. And, and your experience with these systems is really going to depend on where you live. So if you're not even recognized as a part of the American public, policy decisions aren't going to be designed for you. You're going to be left out. Thank you so much for your work, interviewing people on this issue and putting together the story we're about to hear. Um, let's just get into it. Robin Tovey lives in Portland, Oregon, and she's voted in every election since the 90s. But one of her first memories about an election is from junior high, when she was growing up in a small town in rural Oregon, and Jesse Jackson came to speak at the high school. And the junior high kids who were in honor society were bussed over to the high school, which for the record, I of course had to get a ride from my dad who worked nearby, but the bus that they were using that day was not accessible. So 
I got a ride. His speech um, that he gave many places, I'm sure, uh, laid out his concept of inclusion related to his grandmother's patchwork quilt. When he spoke, he mentioned lots of different minority populations and, and the importance of inclusion. And it made an impact on me that day. So even though it was a number of years before I could vote, uh, that was a pretty cool bit of exposure to have early on and made me think more about what was important. That speech shaped her political views in a big way. She hasn't missed a presidential election since she was old enough to vote. And even though Robin was born without arms or legs, she always sends in her ballot. It's pretty straightforward. She gets her ballot in the mail, puts the pencil in her mouth, and fills in the form. Then she signs, seals, and stamps it herself. In the U.S., there are an estimated 50 million people with physical or developmental disabilities. Federal laws say that all polling places must follow a basic accessibility checklist. It includes things like wheelchair ramps, parking spaces, and entrances that are wide enough. But not all places are actually accessible. To learn more, I spoke with Greg Baratan. He's a disability rights advocate in New York City. He also helped start a hashtag this year called CripTheVote, which facilitates conversations that focus on disability rights and democracy. Greg has a learning disability, but like Robin, he's had no problems voting. But not everyone he knows has had such a smooth experience. The experience in urban areas I've seen has been pretty appalling. I mean, there are places that are just inaccessible, um, where people are told that you, you know your only option is to do an absentee ballot. You know, I, I, I still have people coming up, you know, on, on Twitter saying, you know, I, I really want to go out and vote and be seen voting. And, you know, they're not giving me that option. I have a twin sister with a developmental disability as well. Um, and she's been given grief about getting assistance when she votes. A supervisor had to be called to, to get approval and, you know, the volunteer didn't want to let her go in with, you know, an assistant, even though it's her right to do so. Greg points out that a lot of places don't even get the basics right. And federal laws still leave enough room for states to make voting harder. You might have heard of the voter ID laws that have been passed in many different states. People with disabilities get those IDs at much lower rates, partially because many disabled people don't drive. Four states deny the ballot to people who live under guardianship, and 30 states have laws that can ban people from voting who are, quote, mentally incapacitated. You know, you heard lots of stories about this. I mean, people having to go to extraordinary lengths to get an ID, you know, people who don't have access to transportation, people who don't have a lot of time to to spare to get out to to get to these, you know, whether it's a DMV or, or a state, uh, you know, ID center. Um, that's only open certain days of the week. Um, so, I mean, it just puts another barrier in people's way that makes it more likely that they won't vote. So there are all of these restrictions and bad ideas scattered all over the country. But Greg says that the good ideas are scattered everywhere, too. And when it comes to making the actual polling places more accessible, it's a matter of finding the many different ideas that work and spreading them everywhere. Well, I mean, I think there are good practices out there. I think we need to borrow from everyone. I mean, there are, you know, there's there's places that have curbside voting. There are places that make it easy to go in with an assistant. Um, there are places that have accessible voting machines. 
I don't think there's a lot of reinvention that needs to take place as much as actually spreading good practices. This was a running theme as I talked to more people. There should be many options because there are many different kinds of needs. For instance, there's curbside voting where people bring the voting machine out to your car. There's automatic voter registration. States like Oregon, Missouri, and New Hampshire have worked on special tablets that can be brought to a person's home. One activist I talked to suggested secure online voting. Another took it a step further and said that there should be many options that all voters can choose from, whether or not they have a disability at all. That way, nobody has to have a quote-unquote excuse to pick any one option. And then there's also voting by mail. That's how Robin Tovey casts her vote in Oregon. And Oregonians are proud of it. Last month, Senators Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley proposed a bill to expand vote by mail to the rest of the country. Greg says vote by mail is a great system, but it's not a silver bullet, because it's also important for people to feel seen out there as a citizen casting a ballot. It's actually important that the community is seen as members of the voting public. Um, I'm not advocating taking away mail-in ballots, because I think it's, it's enabled many people to vote who wouldn't get out. Um, but, you know, you need to give them that choice. It, it, shouldn't be the, it shouldn't be the system's choice. It needs to be the person's choice. There's no one perfect design solution that disability activists more or less agree on. It's more like a series of good ideas to address the many different needs that people have. But there's one thing everyone agreed on. There have to be more options, and they all need to actually work equally well. And in this election, disability rights have occasionally taken center stage. One of the most powerful speeches at the Democratic National Convention this August was given by disability advocate Anastasia Somoza. She, she has never lost touch with people like me. She has invested in me, she believes in me, and in a country where 56 million Americans with disabilities so often feel invisible, Hillary Clinton sees me. I asked Robin Tovey whether she had watched the speech, and she definitely had. I actually got home from work that night and turned it on, PBS, my preferred channel, and I felt like, oh, wow. I lucked out. It was perfect timing. I saw her roll onto the stage, and I was drawn into that. I stopped to, to watch that, and she did a nice job. She spoke well to her experience. Robin was wary of what she called a heartstrings approach. She didn't want to see people with disabilities paraded out in order for people to just feel things instead of changing real laws. And as you can hear, she sounds cautiously optimistic. Uh, obviously, people responded in a warm manner. That was nice to see. I wanted to see how the follow-up went, right, to, to know if later in the evening there was a mention of disability issues in any of the speech-making, and I was pleased. I also talked to Andrew Polring. He's one of the other co-founders of Crypt the Vote. I asked him to explain the difference between lip service and meaningful change, but he pointed out that those two things aren't totally separate, because one reason the Crypt the Vote hashtag exists at all is because disability issues were almost never mentioned during the presidential debates and the primaries. You know, there comes a point in the speech when you mention all the different types of Americans who are struggling to achieve the American dream, and you list, right? You use the rule of three, and you list three or four different groups. And what we noticed was they were not anymore including people with disabilities. 
when in previous years they were at least doing that. And that's lip service right there. But we, we were not even, not even getting lip service. So lip service by itself isn't a bad thing. It's a first step. And, and when we identify it, we want to say, thank you for remembering that we exist. Now we would like to hear more about what, what you think about this. What will you do? What are the policy issues? So I think we're in that middle step between we're, we're getting out of the realm of lip service into something more substantive. I think to the most of the general public, they're still in this stage of noticing the presence and kind of marveling at that. Andrew feels optimistic about the increasing visibility of disabled people. And he says he's looking for a specific thing after the election. Remember how Greg Baratan from earlier on said that it was important to be seen as members of the voting public? For Andrew, that also means being actually included in all that election data that journalists love to analyze so much. It'll be a big step when the day after an election, when all the journalists are pouring over the results, and doing stories about, well, what did it all mean, right? And they are going and talking about how did black people vote and how did women vote and how did people of this income bracket vote, that they are also saying, and how did disabled people vote? They, they never really do that. Millions of Americans with disabilities are eligible to vote, and lots of them have no problem voting, and others have lots of obstacles in their way. But there are specific patterns that link all people with disabilities. My only real impairment is that I can't walk a long distance and I'm very, very short. I'm essentially a little person. The biggest barrier for people with disabilities, I think, overall, is that voting happens on a particular day between a particular set of hours and at particular places. Okay, that's three different particulars. <laughs> and no matter what kind of disabilities you have, what we all have in common, I think, is that it's just harder for us to do any particular thing at a particular time in a particular place. We can do these things, but restricting it to a certain way is what makes it hard for us. If my car wasn't working or if I didn't have a car, then I would literally be faced with the possibility that I might just bag the whole idea of voting, even though it's only a couple of blocks away. And you don't have to pile on too many things going wrong for it just not to happen. Robin echoed this idea too. And she also related it to barriers that everybody faces. She said it's one thing to have the actual right to vote but we need to remove every barrier of every size so that people can actually fit this really important right into their schedules. We talk about voting rights in the U.S., but I also think it somewhat can be a privilege because, say, you're a single mom with several kids and it's just really difficult to you know, get there that evening. Or say you have some mobility limitation and you're gonna to have to take two different buses or get a ride or call a cab that may or may not be accessible. Uh, don't even get me started on Uber. Uh, and that's really gonna prevent you from perhaps even following through on the best intentions you might have for voting. For Greg, Robin, Andrew, 
and others who are working on these issues and care about them, being seen is a huge part of all of this. You can't change laws without applying pressure, and you can't apply pressure if people don't know you're there. The population of Americans with disabilities is so huge and diverse, and it's time for more politicians to start paying attention. That was reporter Alan Montecilio. He also produces the great podcast Racist Sandwich.